0: Thanks for choosing a 3CR podcast. Throughout June 2022, we're running our annual Radiothon when we ask you, the listener, to make a donation so that we can continue to make great radio. Your donation will help keep us community-owned and community-controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. And with that done, please enjoy your podcast.
1: But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens with mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the uh, are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah.
2: McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the body. Bar- and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. Listen, I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind
3: of a symbol.
0: Welcome to Yeah Na Pasaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week, we are joined by Dr. Robert Horvath, who is the author of the book, Putin's Fascists, Ruski Orbras and the Politics of Managed Nationalism in Russia. Thanks for joining us, Robert. Thank you for having me. I guess just to begin with, you're you're more than welcome here, but uh, you recently discovered that you're no longer welcome in Russia. What happened? Well, I am one of the 121
2: Australians who've been honoured with this kind of Lifetime Achievement Award that the Putin regime gives to strange lists of people. Um, This is certainly the only time in my life that I'm likely to find myself on the same list as Lachlan Murdoch and Gina Reinhart. But in my case, it was not because they were trying to find someone who looked like one of their oligarchs and say are retaliating by punishing uh, someone they can say is in the same category of someone that the West has put sanctions on. I'm sure I was chosen because I've made... Comments critical of the Putin regime over many years. Probably the turning point was a couple of years ago when I appeared on Channel Lines Under Investigation, and they had a program about the poisoning of Alexei Navalny. And the first question I was asked was, "Dr. Horvath, is Vladimir Putin a terrorist?" And I don't really thought of that, uh, thought that through, but. As I thought it through, I I had to respond, well, given he has employed a banned nerve agent against his principal political opponent, and that the purpose of that, the fact that they chose that kind of poisoning to indicate state involvement, suggests that the description of terrorist is not unreasonable. And I'm sure as a As a result of that, it would have been impossible for me to receive a visa to visit Russia um, as long as Putin was in power. I certainly didn't expect myself to be actually listed on a sanctions list, but it is a great honour.
0: Well, you're our second guest who's been banned from Russia, so I have a feeling that our dreams of a Kamchatka holiday are fast fading. Yeah, well, I...
2: I was looking forward to spending time in uh, Norilsk, and um, that's also um, faded. So, um, but I, Seriously, personally, I have spent many years in Russia. I have some wonderful friends there. I enjoy being there. So I certainly feel the loss of not being able to visit Russia. It's a, a wonderful country, and it has many wonderful people and a wonderful culture. As for the regime, well,
0: um, that's a very different story. You've written this book, Putin's Fascists. It's about this group, Ruski Orbras, but it's also about this policy of managed nationalism, which uh, Putin's regime employed. Could you tell us what is managed nationalism?
2: It's basically the way that the Putin regime has facilitated the construction of authoritarian institutions by mobilising radical nationalists as a counterweight to... The opponents of autocratization. From about 2004 to 2013, there was a serious protest movement against the construction of authoritarian institutions in Russia and the dismantling of democratic institutions. And mobilizing radical extremists was a big part of the way that the Putin regime dealt with that resistance. And neo-Nazis were particularly useful. Neo-Nazis like this group, Risky Ruski that I've looked at, because firstly, they were ideologically hostile to democratic institutions. That made them different to mainstream nationalists who often, for all of their prejudices, often believed that the people should have some sort of a voice in who govern them, and that the principle of one person, one vote was actually an okay principle. The uh, neo-Nazis that I've uh, researched, and Rusky in particular, they boasted that they didn't believe in human equality. They saw society as hierarchical. They believed that there were castes of uh, superior people who, both by their race and by their personal qualities, entitled them to rule over others, irrespective of elections or democratic processes. And that meant that neo-Nazis were much more eager to collaborate with the Putin regime than many mainstream nationalists. And this became particularly significant around 2008 to 2009, when Alexei Navalny, who is today the principal opponent of the Putin regime and um, Russia's most famous political prisoner, he was trying to create a coalition of radical nationalists and liberal nationalists to demand democracy in Russia and to resist Russia's slide into authoritarianism. And the Putin regime deliberately supported this neo Nazi group, Ruski Operas, as a counterweight to that project of Navalny. And it used them it, to destroy one of the most powerful radical nationalist mass movements, the movement against illegal immigration, whose leaders were flirting with the idea of trying to create a Western-style populist nationalist party, abandoning the, the skinheads underground for conventional politics that, as one of its leaders boasted, would not frighten people. So that was something that was very threatening for the Putin regime. And it used neo-Nazis to overcome that threat. When I think about Putin, I think about how long he's ruled in
3: Russia, but also as him being, in some ways, a product of the Soviet world. And how do you see what can be said about his progress from an agent in the political um, secret police to his role now as as president? And secondly, I guess I associate that, you know, the Soviet regime with being quite an authoritarian uh, state structure that seems to have been, after a period of liberalisation, resurrected. So I guess the broader question is how do you relate the Putin regime to earlier uh,
2: systems of rule within Russia? The main connection between the Putin regime and the uh, Soviet regime is that at the core of the Putin regime are a group of people who were veterans of the Soviet security forces either the KGB or the GRU and those security forces had a kind of an ethos that was it was cultivated by the Soviet regime that they were heroic knights of the revolution fearless soldiers fighting for a just cause now there's certainly something of that that has contributed to Putin's authoritarianism, the the belief that this elite is... Something special because of what it was as Czechists, as the sword and, and shield of the revolution. A state-funded popular culture of the Putin regime has produced a lot of television series about heroic Czechists, about um, heroic state security officers fighting to defend Russia against Nazis, against the CIA and other foreign enemies. So that was certainly a major continuity. I suppose the other continuity is just in in Putin's own life. We know that he was engaged in small-scale corruption when he was in the FSB in Dresden. Um, We... Know from Bader Meinhof terrorists who've since been interviewed, who who he was involved in handling them, that unlike their other Soviet handlers, he was obsessed with them bringing him back stereo equipment from the West, that he was just very materialist. And that is, I think, the, the most important thread running through Putin's life. He's become possibly the greatest kleptocrat in world history. And That has significant political consequences. If you are a kleptocrat, then at a certain point, your opponents will begin to say, you're an enemy of the people. You have betrayed the people. The people are suffering because you have stolen from the people. You are an enemy. And the way the kleptocrats respond to that is by becoming super patriots. They find foreign enemies. They claim to be defending the homeland from uh, foreign aggression they vilify their domestic critics as pawns of foreign interests as spies and as traitors, and uh, when they're under significant domestic pressure, they often respond with aggression on the international stage and so Putin, the whole course of the development of Putin's dictatorship from the suppression of domestic protest the poisoning of political opponents, the explosion of the domestic propaganda apparatus to cultivate this truly paranoid view of the world. In my view, all of that is deeply bound up with Putin's kleptocracy, the fact that he has enriched himself to the level of tens of billions of dollars. Speaking of taking things that may
3: not be yours, we've also recently witnessed a war. Russia has invaded Ukraine, is in his pronouncements justifying the invasion Putin seemed to claim that Ukraine was probably part of this greater Russia. At the same time, um, in terms of the propaganda that's been produced to justify the war, the Ukrainian state has been uh, portrayed as being a a Nazi political formation. And that seems to be somewhat incongruous if one considers, as you've documented in your book and as others have, uh, Putin's regime's apparent willingness to employ Nazis in Russia to support it in this kind of theatre, this political theatre of managed nationalism, what do you think is going on in terms of, I suppose, can you give an account of uh, or respond to the the notion that Ukraine is a Nazi state and what role does drawing on this history
2: play in justifying the war? Firstly, the claim that Ukraine is a Nazi state is completely absurd. There were some far-right extremists who played a, a significant role in the uprising uh, of the so-called Euromaidan in 2013 to 2014. That was not surprising because dictatorship then had started to use force against protesters and it turned out that skinheads were better at street fighting when serious violence was being used against crowds than many of the liberal intellectuals and human rights activists and leftist militants in those crowds. But the reality of Ukrainian politics both then and since is that Ukraine is a pluralistic society. It has a a vigorous civil society in extreme contrast to Russia where civil society has been brutally repressed and the state has promoted uncivil society. It's promoted extremists, it's promoted violent groups that are loyalist. The other thing that's important to remember about Ukraine is that it has a jewish president a a president who is publicly proud of his jewish heritage that's certainly difficult to reconcile with the idea that russia is liberating ukraine from nazis ukraine also the political far right in ukraine got about two percent of the vote in the 2019 parliamentary elections so that's much less than in almost any other country Um, It's certainly much less than the vote for the far right, for One Nation and other parties in Australia's 2019 parliamentary election. So if if that's a criteria for a state being run by neo-Nazis, that they get 2% of the vote in a parliamentary election, then Australia needs to be liberated as well. The only plausible argument concerns the as-of Battalion. Um, That was a paramilitary structure that emerged when Russia attacked Ukraine in 2014. And this was a, a time when the Ukrainian security apparatus was in absolute disarray. However, what's happened since then is that the Azov battalion has been absorbed within the Ukrainian armed forces. Its political Ideologues have been removed and have created their own separate far-right grouping, which has done spectacularly badly in elections. And if anything, this is an example of how a reformist state de-radicalizes structures that are potentially threatening. So I see no, re- no justification at all for the Putin regime's um, propaganda about Ukraine needing to be liberated from
0: Nazis. The group that you look at in the book, Ruskjobras, which fits within this uh, managed nationalism structure, but it seems like they weren't managing things very well. Could you talk a little bit about how this group sort of, I mean, it really went off the rails? Ruskjobras
2: does exemplify the dangers of managed nationalism, the dangers of promoting neo-Nazis because they can be useful against your liberal and socialist opponents. The Ruski Obras was founded by two people uh, a studious intellectual um, named Ilya Goryachev and a young skinhead called Nikita Tikhonov. And D- D- Nikita Tikhonov, with Goryachev's help, went on to establish a, a terrorist group called BORN, uh, which is an acronym for the Fighting Organization of Russian Nationalists. And Born was responsible for a series of high-profile assassinations. They murdered Russia's most famous human rights lawyer and Antifa intellectual, Stanislav Markelov. They assassinated a federal judge who'd put several neo-Nazi killers behind bars. They were responsible for the murder of a series of leading Antifa activists and militants and also some uh, high-profile, racially motivated murders. Um, So for the Putin regime, this became a major problem because the FSB eventually tracked down the uh, leader of the Bourne, Nikita Tikhanov. He was put on trial for the murder of the human rights lawyer Stanislav Mikhailov, and that investigation exposed a lot of the connections between the Kremlin and this neo-Nazi organization, Ruski Orboros, which was working very closely with this terrorist group. And the ultimate result of that was all the members of BORN and the two founders of Ruski uh Ilya Goryachev and Nikita Tikhonov, are either serving life sentences or very, very long prison sentences. But uh, um, for... The managers of um, managed nationalism. This was a major setback in the careers of many of them. And there's some of them continued to play some role. Some of them reemerged after Russia's invasion of Ukraine in 2014. But for all of them, this was a major embarrassment.
0: Where does the figure of somebody like uh, Alexander Dugin fit into all of this?
2: Dugin is interesting. He's he's certainly the most. Influential popularizer of fascist and neo Nazi ideas in contemporary Russia. He was one of the co leaders of the National Bolshevik Party in the 1990s, and the newspaper of the National Bolshevik Party, Limonka, was a major influence on the aesthetic of Whiskey Operas and on the thinking of many of its activists. Um, There were some of the leading members of Ruski Operas who had been members of the, well, um, who'd been part of the subculture of the National Bolshevik Party. And I suppose it also played an important role as a model because it was a political party that was grounded in the far-right musical subculture. And Ruski Operas was similar in that regard. Also, as far as Dugan's influence is concerned, After Ukraine's Orange Revolution of 2004, when the Putin regime started to transform Russia's political order and to promote various loyalist groups, Dugin created this Eurasianist youth union, which was intended to organise all of the radical groups, all of the radical nationalists of the former Soviet space against the threat of a Ukrainian-style coloured revolution. And in pursuit of that goal, Dugin and his Eurasianist Youth Union applied to the Russian authorities in October 2005 to hold a anti-Orangist patriotic march in Moscow. And that march was taken over by skinheads and neo-Nazis and it became the first of the so-called Russian marches. Um, so Dugin has certainly played an important role both intentionally and in inadvertently, as someone who's played a, a um who's made a really significant contribution to the progress of the far right in Russia. In terms of Dugan's contribution to a transnational
3: far right, I did notice recently, or relatively recently, uh, Lauren Southern and others traveled to Russia to interview Dugan. And there seems to be some kind of an attempt to bring to the attention of Western audiences some of his ideas. But at the same time, he has a particular worldview which seems most commensurate with Putin's vision for Russia in the future. Do you think Dugin has much appeal or potential appeal outside of
2: uh, Russia? I suppose, firstly, uh, as far as Dugin's relationship to Putin's ideas are concerned, I don't think Dugin on on his own is particularly significant. There are a, a large number of ideological entrepreneurs and so-called political technologists in Russia who are advancing a similar anti-Western agenda that has a a, a fascist undercurrent. Um, it's, a, it's about a kind of a regenerative revolution that will restore us to some glorious past. As far as the international stage is concerned, he's very skillful as a kind of ideological entrepreneur who finds different anti-Western actors in different societies and offers the, them the support of his own PR apparatus. Recently, um, there's been quite a lot of attention about how Russia's become increasingly active in Africa. Um, there's a, a leading anti-colonialist, pan-Africanist militants called uh, uh, Kemi Seba, And he's had lots of meetings with Dugin. They've been photographed together. His articles have appeared on Dugin's site. So Dugin, someone with a genuine neo-Nazi, neo-fascist past, is cultivating anti-Western, black power, anti-colonialist militants, which... Testifies to his role as a kind of intermediary between the Putin regime and anyone who will serve the Putin regime's interests on the international stage.
0: Ideological entrepreneur seems like a very polite way of saying grifter, <laughs> to be honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, we've recently seen a, a group called the Base in the United States and elsewhere. Uh, members have been convicted of various crimes, and it was revealed a few years ago that they were being run out of an apartment in St. Petersburg. Do you think it's possible that sort of an international neo-Nazi terror group could be run out of, you know, an apartment in St. Petersburg without at least the knowledge of the Russian state? I think it's impossible
2: that the Russian
0: state was not aware
2: of... Ronaldo Navarro living in St. Petersburg and the activities um, he was involved in. There's been sufficient media reporting about the fact that he is there, that um, I I find it absolutely impossible to believe that the Russian authorities were not aware of it. And I, I suppose also it's consistent with a broader pattern of far right proxy organizations that are connected to the russian security apparatus that have been working with western extremist organizations they range from the Russian imperial movement that has a camp called partisan outside saint Petersburg where they have we know they've given training to german extreme right militants and to Swedish neo-Nazis who were later arrested for blowing up and a hostel for asylum seekers. And there's also the the structures associated with the Night Wolves motorcycle gang. Um, They are connected to the um, so-called Sistema combat training schools, um, Hmm. which are known to have provided training to Western far-right militants. Uh,
3: what opportunities have been provided to Russian ultranationalists by
2: the war on Ukraine and how have they responded to it? That's an interesting question. There are certainly some Russian ultranationalists who are opposed to the war, particularly those who are beginning to de radicalize. Dmitry Djomushkin is one, Igor Girkin, um, Strelkov is another. There are others who clearly have benefited. Um, who basically have served as paramilitary fighters in the invading forces. Um, there's the Rusich Group, which is connected to the Wagner Corps, which it itself has a, a clear connection to the far right, widely believed. And I, I've seen no evidence the contrary, that Wagner is um, named Wagner because the original leader of the group admired Hitler's favorite composer and had marked tattoos. There's also the Imperial Legion, which consists of fighters from the, um, the Russian Imperial Movement. Um, so there certainly are some far right groups which are developing their combat ability through the war, and presumably they're they're also acquiring. Opportunities for recruitment and promoting their own um, status as patriots defending
0: the motherland. So there'll be lots of denazification to keep Putin busy in the years to come. Presumably,
2: yeah. I suspect this will be a major problem for a post Putin Russia. That the regime has not merely fostered the emergence of a large group of ultra right militants, but it's militarized them. It, it's turned them into people who know how to kill with weapons and with explosives for the long term that, that's a really ominous development
0: well robert thanks so much for joining us we've run out of time if people want to follow you on twitter you're at rg underscore Horvath. thanks for joining us thank you very much well andy that's our show uh we have a couple of people to thank who donated since our radiothon show so thank you to jordan Jimbellina, ross and clive and also a whole bunch of Anonymouses. Thank you to everyone who has donated to our Radiothon so far. You too can join them. Uh, go to 3cr.org.au slash donate and you can uh, make a donation. Just make sure you say it's for Yeah, Now nah, Pass around. not for any of these other brilliant radio shows that 3CR puts to air every single week. And we'll catch you next week. See you later. Bye-bye.
1: Damos la fuerza en la comunidad. Keep community strong. El TAM ya llegó, time to donate, Free CR Radio Thome 2022. El TAM llegó, time to donate, 3CI Radio Thome 2022.